basically Cuba is shut down. There are no flights in, no flights out. The impact that it's having on those 500,000 entrepreneurs is so severe that we're not sure that many of them will ever be able to make it back because they were marginal to begin with. Welcome to the Pen and Sword podcast from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm Emily Donahue, in for Fred Burton. Post-pandemic, would you choose to get away from the place you've been locked in for the last few months? Maybe a mighty national park or a major city bustling once again with people and events? Maybe you'd head to a remote beach to relax. Maybe a sunny island nestled in the Caribbean. One surrounded by lush hills, pastel-colored homes lining historic streets, friendly locals, great food, and remarkably free of crowds of tourists. Maybe that makes you think of Key West or a Virgin Island or some other place. But I'm describing Cuba, an island whose people have endured economic and political restrictions for centuries, and whose people are the subject of a new book by Anthony De Palma, The Cubans, Ordinary Lives in Extraordinary Times. Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Emily. Thanks for inviting me. So a little bit like a love story <laughs> to people, a whole island and people in history. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with Cuba. It's unique. I've been a, a journalist for many decades now, maybe more than uh, I care to remember, but i say four or five decades. And this is the only story that really I could say is both a professional interest and a personal passion. Uh, my wife, Miriam, uh, was born in Cuba uh, and left as a child and told me stories about her life there. Uh, and it was so different from the, the idea that you have of Cuba, post-revolutionary Cuba, that um, I felt it was, uh, in a way, a lost world uh, and filled with people who had dreams and lives uh, that really uh, predated Fidel and didn't have much to do with him. For the last 60 years, we've, if we've heard anything from Cuba, we've heard it from people like Fidel or his brother Raul Che Guevara, or even Ernest Hemingway, all of those people that you connect with the Cuban story. But rarely do the Cuban people themselves ever get heard here in the rest of the world or down there where they live under an autocratic system that uh, doesn't really give their right to express themselves uh, any uh, free reign. So they're basically asylum people who've lived through this interminable revolution uh, that really has a lot to do with our lives here in the United States, and we don't know anything about them. So I took it as a challenge to get down there and, and uh, earn their trust and find out what life is really like for them. That was a beautiful description, and it comes across so vividly in your book. It seems to me that, in fact, in your very brief restatement of some early history of Cuba, the people were not heard from very well then as well. I mean, even prior to the revolution. Well, I mean, Cuba's history is uh, is unique in the sense that it was one of the earliest of Spanish colonies. And it was basically the last one that Spain held on to. I mean, it was considered such a prize that Spain was unwilling to give it up 
way past uh, the rest of its colonies had declared independence. So we're talking about uh, Miriam's grandmother, not that long ago, was born on the day that the Treaty of Paris was signed, ending the Spanish-American-Cuban War. So it's, we're talking about a, a colony right up until uh, basically the, the beginning of the 20th century. Spain never gave it up. They controlled it uh, because it was so valuable for them. So there was always a difference. Uh, a Cuban society was always split up between uh, Spaniards who were born in Spain, Spaniards who were born in Cuba, Spaniards who then intermingled with people who were born in Cuba, and then the the whole issue of slaves and the, the mulatto class. Mulatto is, is a common word down there in Cuba, doesn't create the same kind of um, antagonisms that it does in other countries. Um, and there was always a clear difference between the people who had power uh, and the people who didn't. And that basically continued and in many ways continues today, despite the revolution that had promised uh, to end inequality. You know, the revolution is pretty much the narrative of the United States relationship to Cuba in the past 60 years. And it is the frame through which I think most people born after 1960 think of Cuba, right, as Fidel Castro's country. And yet you're telling the story of this nation through the stories of some very, very interesting and yet very ordinary people. Tell me a little bit about how you met them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that, that journalists do. Um, I was a correspondent, foreign correspondent for the New York Times for many years and a national correspondent and a metro reporter as well. And you oftentimes begin a project, no matter what it is, um, with a single name or one person or maybe not knowing anybody and just starting to ask around. In this case, um, I had a couple of different challenges because Cuba is still uh, difficult to get into uh, for a reporter. Um, the government has quite a lot of control. So I had to pick a place that logistically would give me access. Uh, and I needed to be able to excel what, what some, some of my colleagues call accelerated intimacy. You have a short amount of time to get to know people in the way that in a neighborhood it might take five or six years before you really got to know somebody. As a journalist, you're going to try to do that in, in five or six months. So to, to kickstart that process and to find a place that logistically worked for me, I needed someplace in Cuba that was going to be close enough to Havana to have access, close enough to Havana to be part of the process of what's going on down there now, the changes um, that we can talk about later, and uh, a, a place that was different enough from Havana that it wasn't Havana. Havana being fairly well known to uh, to people around the world as a representation of, of Cuba. It turned out that uh, I was fortunate enough that Miriam's hometown is a municipality on the other side of Havana. 
close enough for me to get to. It's a ferry ride away from the city, uh, but far enough away with its own history and its own culture that uh, it became a, a basically a different existence. It also gave me the advantage of having um, a sort of a built-in introduction, even though I didn't know anyone there. Uh, Miriam's family left a long time ago. There is nobody there um, who knew the family. Um, but Latins are like that. Uh, once I mentioned that she had been there as a child, uh, that we had uh, spent a long time together, and of course speaking Spanish, I was able to uh, gain uh, access to a number of people that uh, probably would have taken a lot longer to do uh, under other circumstances. So with one person, the first person I knew was Caridad, who is the central character. Fortunately for me, she turned out to be uh, a fascinating, intelligent, creative person whose history, whose own personal history, basically reflects the revolution. She being born in southeastern Cuba in a sugar town, sugar mill town, three weeks after Fidel arrived in the yacht Granma to begin the uprising. So by talking about her life, I was able to talk about the whole history of the revolution. And for, uh, in certain circumstances, before the revolution and uh, continuing right up to today. You describe Caridad and the other people that you spoke to as sort of on a precipice. They're right on the edge of something, but every time they get to the point of being able to do something, the prohibitions come back into place. Yeah. What I found... Now, I've known Cubans for, for four decades. I've been traveling. My first trip there was in 1979. So I've watched a lot of the changes. 1979 was important because it was before the uh, what they call the special period, the, the time when the Soviet Union, which had been heavily subsidizing Cuba, pulled out when the economy of Cuba colla basically collapsed because it had been living on somebody else's money, the money from the Soviet Union. Uh, Caridad. Uh, an Afro-Cuban woman who really benefited from the revolution. Uh, she went from this small sugar town. Uh, her mother was a uh, uh, basically a nurse's assistant who brought her and her twin sister to Havana. They enrolled in schools and did well there. And in uh, the late 1970s, when Cuba was in the sort of the golden part of its revolution, when it was flush with money from the Soviet Union, because it was basically an outpost standing up, uh, giving the Soviet Union an opportunity to be close to the United States and the whole missile crisis and the Bay of Pigs had already passed. She was able to go to study in uh, the university in Kiev as part of the socialist camp, came back with a graduate degree in economic engineering and made her way up through the ranks in both the Communist Party and in the uh, Cuban economy to become vice minister of light industry for the entire country. And she uh, sort of represented that period of the, um, of the revolution. She was fully she fully embraced the idea of the communism of Fidel and of what Cuba could become. Then the special period basically peeled back a lot of that uh, surface, and underneath she found that 
a lot of the promises that the revolution had made, uh, particularly about equality, and she being an Afro-Cuban was particularly concerned with that, not just because of the color of her skin, but because of her gender. And she began to see that um, it really wasn't the socialist um, equal country that Cuba was supposed to be. Eventually, she, like many other people, became disillusioned with the revolution. She decided at some point to give up her post, to give up her party uh, affiliation, and now is what you would in ordinary terms describe as a capitalist. She's one of the half a million Cubans who have taken out licenses to become self-employed uh, entrepreneurs. She saw that as a way of getting ahead, of a way of improving life for herself and her family. And she was just as um, deeply into that as she had been the revolution earlier. So for her, it was like a second revolution. And she thought it was really going to bring Cuba forward, um, especially after President Obama restored diplomatic relations with Cuba. When Obama, uh, President Obama and Michelle went to Cuba in uh, 2016, she was one of a group of uh, entrepreneurs who met with him to see a young black American president and his wife walking the streets of Havana really gave her hope that uh, in some ways Cuba was going to be able to take its place in the modern world. And then, of course, right after that, the situation again reversed. And uh, many of the businesses that were started by entrepreneurs in Cuba struggled as tourism dried up because of the administration's changes and as um, it became a, a desperate attempt on the part of Caridad and her family and many other families to keep their children in Cuba, to keep them from leaving, to keep them believing that the promise could be achieved. She tried as best she could to get her son, her only son, uh, to stay, helped him set up his own business. But uh, at the end of 2018, he, like many others, decided uh, that there was no future for him in Cuba. So he left along with his two cousins, his aunt, and uh, thousands of other people. It happens over and over again in Cuba. They get ready to, um, to realize some of their gains, and then something happens and they, they fall back. Today, it's the, um, the corona virus down there that has shut down Cuba. Basically, Cuba is shut down. There are no flights in, no flights out. The impact that it's having on those 500,000 entrepreneurs is so severe that we're not sure that many of them will ever be able to make it back because they were marginal to begin with. We'll get back to our conversation with Anthony De Palma in just a moment, but I wanted to speak to you first about why I think that Stratfor's content is an extraordinary opportunity in these strange times. The real-time challenges of living in an increasingly interconnected world have rarely been more clearly on display as they have this year. The coronavirus pandemic has affected every single aspect of our government, business, life, technology, trade. How we manage the risks that are associated with this change has direct implications for the broader public interest. 
Right now, businesses and individuals are turning to Stratfor and our parent company, Rain, for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Because we provide intelligence, period. You can find more about Stratfor and subscription rates for podcast listeners by visiting stratfor.com slash podcast offer. That's stratfor.com slash podcast offer. Thank you. You describe so beautifully in the book the that marginality and a place where daily life depends not on tourist dollars, but on the courage, confidence, and inventiveness of people living with an excess of prohibitions and a minimum of inhibitions. That's a quote from your book, where people have become masters at masking their misery with vibrant music and rapturous dancing, disguising their frustrations with layers of disrespectful mocking, making a joke of almost everything, and taking almost nothing so seriously that it merits their protest. And yet now, I mean, this is this is a, a population really on the brink. Yeah. One of the things I learned about Cubans, and they told me this themselves, is that every Cuban is or, depending on their age, eventually will be a criminal. They're living in a system where the um you know that the average state salary is still around a dollar a day if you work for the state if you work for yourself under one of these licenses the government doesn't really want you to be that successful uh they have limits on how much money you can make so you have to pay for your license you have to pay taxes on it you have to uh keep a certain percentage of your income in a bank so that the government can keep track of it and also uh, take it. And there's no wholesale market. So you're supposed to run a business without having the legal ability to get the raw material you need for your business. Um, so you end up figuring out other ways to get your material uh, or to get the medicine that you need at home or to get the paint that you need for your house. And everybody... Uh, down there realizes that it's impossible to live just by the rules. So they set up their own rules. And the rules are, it's okay to steal if you're stealing from the state. And they've even come up with a, a term for it in Spanish. It's called resolver or inventar. They, they, they vary it. It basically means yeah, we know it's not right, but what are you going to do? That's what you need to do in order to survive. I think today, with the situation that we have here in the United States, people can get some sense of what it must be like to be one of these Cubans living an ordinary life in Cuba during an interminable revolution. When you go to the stores and find empty shelves, not for a week or two weeks the way we are, but for the last 60 years. When you are stuck in your house and you can't go out unless the government says it's okay for you to go out. When you are not allowed, when the churches are empty and the temples are empty and the synagogues are empty. Fidel kept the churches and the synagogues empty down there. Here it's Corona that's keeping them empty. When you can't leave, 
right? There's no place to go. You can't get on an airline and you can't have people from outside coming in to visit you. That's essentially what they've been living with for the last 60 years. Think about what that does to your um, your spirit, your struggle to get from one day to the next, to find enough food from one day to the next is so consuming that you learn instead of demanding change, right? The way we've got people here demanding outside the state houses that they need to be able to reopen their businesses or to be able to go to church or to be able to reopen the schools. There, they've become so consumed by the day-to-day struggle that it's all they can do to simply adapt to the conditions. So rather than demanding change, they're adapting to the scarcity by coming up with all kinds of inventions. Um, I've seen, um, well, of course, you have the cars, right? The the, the biggest symbol mm-hmm. of the revolution are the, the old cars. And yet you describe them, yeah, the, the, all the all the Westerners think they're so cool and they're classic, and you describe them as held together with uh, glue and tape or wire. And yeah. un- underneath all that shiny pink paint is rust and, and filler, and the uh, the motor is from an old Russian car, and the brakes are from somewhere else, and none of them have seat belts, and none of them have uh, pollution controls, and you basically are, are taking your life in your hands by getting in one of them. But it does allow you to, to dream, and it does allow them to uh, – to survive those things you can pay sixty thousand dollars for one of those beat up old cars uh it's the only country in the world the cubans themselves tell me where everywhere else as soon as you buy a car and you take it out of the uh, the showroom the value starts to go down in cuba it's just the opposite the older it is the more valuable it becomes because there's such a limit on uh on what they can bring in. And this is a country that relies on imports. Very much so. So imagine what happens when the airports are closed and the outside markets are closed. They have, um, there's no, there's no fish for most of these Cubans. Uh, In an island in the Caribbean surrounded by water, I was quite surprised to find out that fish is, uh, you know, for, for consumption is very limited uh, the you might know about the their system of uh, rationing food. They have little booklets called the libreta that gives them access to subsidized food supplies. It was started 60 years ago as a temporary measure, but it has continued. Uh, mm. Every month they have an allotment of rice and beans and cooking oil. And um, th- these are all published so people know or they go to the store and they find it. And they're supposed to have a certain amount of fish. A few years ago, I saw it listed um, in one of the stores as pollo por pescado, meaning chicken for fish. And I, I thought, oh, I guess they're like giving them chicken backs in order to go fishing or something like that. Uh, then a Cuban pulled me aside laughing and said, no, no, you got it all wrong. We're supposed to get fish, but there's no fish. So they give you an extra allotment of frozen chicken, usually chicken from the United States. 
in place of the fish that they don't have. Pollo por pescado. And they don't have fish because nobody has a boat. Uh, you're not allowed to have a boat uh, because with a boat you can uh, try Get to get away. It, yeah, away. Plus, they've also fished out uh, over the years. Wow. Yeah. So, talk to me a little bit about whether, um, as you got all these very personal details of people's lives, or was it safe for them to spend time and share their stories with you? Yeah, I mean, this was this was a real predicament for me. I mean, this is, in essence, it's the it's the journalist predicament. You <laughs> go into a project like this realizing that, uh, or or hoping that by bringing their stories to life in a book or in a newspaper article, you can raise the awareness of the situation there. And by raising the awareness, it might go f to some degree towards uh, helping resolve the problems. But how do you do that without exposing their lives? Um, what I did was realizing that if I went down and uh, with a journalist visa, to let the government know what I was attempting to do, they would then uh, assign someone to follow me. They would know pretty much who I was talking to and, and what I was doing, would put them in uh, a substantial risk. So I decided that rather than do that, I would try to go in just on a tourist visa since I wasn't filing any stories as a journalist. Now, when I went in. Oh, so you started writing this book after one administration relaxed travel restrictions to Cuba, but before the current reversed it. Right, I was Is caught that? right. In, yeah. I was caught right in the middle of it. But, and you were caught right at the end of one regime. Yeah, and so I I, I went in um, simply on tourist visas. Um, so often. In fact, that the immigration officers at one point uh, raised a suspicious eye. I wasn't sure what they were going to say, but it turned out they just wanted to know if I had a girlfriend down there. I was visiting so often. <laughs> uh, so I said, yes, uh, uh, I have a relationship with a Cuban woman. Uh, that woman happens to be my wife for 45 years, but they didn't need to know that. Uh, as far as I know, in the three, uh, three and a half years that I was working on the book down there, no one of my um, characters was ever contacted by a government official. One of the characters we haven't talked about is a member of the Communist Party, not which she's a member of the communist uh, superstructure. She's the local head of the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution. Um, she most likely... Uh, did indicate to her people that I was there, but it was by that by the point I met Lily, I had a relationship with Caridad and some of the others, and so I was looked at not as the enemy, el enemigo, representing the United States, but as a member of this extended family. So nothing ever has has come of it. Uh, now the book is about to be published here not there. Um, and my concern is for them, of course, because they are being identified. I felt it was important to identify them by name. Uh, and I made sure they all understood what I was doing. And to a person, they assured me, 
yes, go ahead, just make sure you get what I say correctly, and uh, I'll deal with the consequences because what else could they do to me? So I felt it was it was probably more risky for them to be under the spotlight while I was there than for them to be uh, worried after the book was published when their names hopefully will be known in order for the government to go after them after they appear in the book um, would be, uh, I think, a more difficult thing for the government to do, especially since in every case they're not talking about uh, nor advocating the overthrow of the regime. Um, right. Uh, of course, the peop- you didn't speak to anybody like that for the book, and no. and that was one of the most to be honest, the most powerful things about the book is that these are just ordinary people living extraordinary lives is the title of your book. Yeah. You know. I, and I, I, uh, I stayed in that town, Wanabakoa for, uh, all the time I was there, met lots of people, but I can't say that I ever came in contact with anyone who was outright advocating the overthrow of the government. There are dissidents. Are they there. just exhausted, or yeah. or they're just they uh, uh, again are are too caught up in the day to day struggle to survive, and it is such an overwhelmingly negative thought to think about risking everything, risking the little bit that they have, <laughs> the the the. You know the bicycle, the the one twenty uh, year old refrigerator, the uh, the fan uh, that they have, uh, the 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 lousy apartment, uh, you know the the low paying job, anything, the little bit that they have to risk all of that for uh, something that will never never turn into uh, a success. That's why I think the embargo, the United States embargo, is built on such a faulty premise. For 60 years, so what, what, are we, what is the United States trying to do? Well, the embargo is to sort of squeeze Cuba to the point where the people are so fed up that they're going to rise up and overthrow the government. When uh, people who don't have fish, instead of even being out on the street to demand that, they, that something as simple as putting fish in the market happens – uh, are ever going to be able to get together and without guns and without with a uh, surveillance system that the government has maintained since the 1960s that basically knows everybody's uh, business as soon as they get together and start talking about anything against the government uh, is ever going to succeed. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I don't it. it it raises the question of what the policy could possibly be, especially it becomes an especially difficult question to answer. Right. They in Cuba are also dealing with the coronavirus. Yeah, they've got uh, about 2000 confirmed cases, uh, only about 80 deaths, uh, not doing so badly. But because they've shut down, they are going to be hurt economically in a economy that was already weakened to begin with, the United States government is still complaining about them sending doctors to other countries. Um, 
because of the embargo, a gift of masks and equipment that was supposed to go from China to Cuba was held up in Panama because the shipper was afraid of being uh, in violation of the Helms-Burton law. Mm -hmm. The United Nations has asked the United States to sort of lift the embargo, at least during the crisis. And uh, the State Department's position is absolutely not. So the theory is we continue to make it more difficult for them. I'm hoping that one of the things that comes from the book is the realization, maybe in Washington, but certainly in South Florida, where a lot of the hardline Cubans are, that anything that we do with the embargo is not going to affect the big guys in the offices in Havana. Raul and his others are not sacrificing at all. Believe me, they have enough fish for uh, meals every day. It's people like Lily and Caridad and the others in here who are always going to be hurt by it. And what what are we trying to do? It gives me no pleasure to at all even come close to defending an authoritarian, totalitarian regime that denies its people the right to freedom of expression, the freedom of movement. But I do have to ask, what is it that we are trying to do? Wow. Well, I think that's a good place to end, although I could keep talking about your book all day. There's so many stories and descriptions and a, and a real sense of who the people there are. The new book is The Cubans, Ordinary Lives in Extraordinary Times. The author is Anthony De Palma. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Emily. You can read more about the geopolitics of Latin America, Cuba, the United States at Stratfor Worldview. Together, Stratfor and our parent company, Rain, help you understand the why behind what's happening now. Because what happens next? Well, that's up to you. Podcast listeners get a special offer to Stratfor Worldview. That's stratfor.com slash podcast offer. Stratfor.com slash podcast offer. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.